Um, Gospel of Mark is one of those books that is about the life of Jesus. Uh, it's part of what we typically call four Gospels, or it's actually one Gospel written by four different authors. It's their own particular take. There's really one story of good news in the Bible. It's oftentimes depicted by four different angles by these four different writers. We're in the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest of all of them. Uh, it's very truncated. It's very... Uh, it's written in such a way that Mark keeps the pace going. He does not slow down to smell the flowers. He doesn't take a lot of time explaining a lot of uh, superfluous details. Mark has one thing in mind. is to talk about Jesus, to identify Jesus as the king, and to ultimately follow the path where Jesus goes as a king. So one of the things that you'll notice in the Gospel of Mark is that Mark spends a lot of time talking about the death of Jesus. He gets to sort of the final week of Jesus pretty quick, pretty early on in his book, because what he wants for us to understand in an overall sense is that the Gospel of Mark is about Jesus the King, but Jesus the King has a mission. The mission that Jesus the King has ultimately is that he will die. And there's a purpose or a reason for his death, and that's what Mark wants us to understand. So that's where we're at. We're going to be taking a look specifically today at this little passage in chapter 1. You guys can't see, can you? You guys need lights. We have lights being turned on so you guys can read your Bible. It's good to read your Bible in light. Because like your mom said, we don't want you to go blind. We love you. And um, there you go. There's light. Now you can read. Um, but what we want to be able to really try to understand and identify as we read through the Gospel, Mark, is that we really want to latch down and understand where Jesus is going with this. But one of the things that Jesus does is he calls people unto himself. And by calling these people unto himself... He's calling them to be these disciples that will follow him. And that's what we're going to see, is that Jesus comes on the scene. Uh, we see Jesus preaching or speaking a message. We'll take a look at that. But one of the things that we'll see also with Jesus is that Jesus is concerned about calling people unto himself to bring them into this journey. And subsequently, what that has to do with us, that Jesus continues to call people. That one of the things you'll discover about the Christian life is that the Christian life is not merely a belief system. It's not merely what you believe. It's actually a lifestyle. It's very important to note that because one of the things I think it's very quick and easy within Western Christianity is that we want to simply reduce it down to a belief system. What you believe about God, we want to make sure that we have cognitive understanding about who God is. We want to make sure that we get our facts straight. Maybe some of you have grown up in those types of churches where everything is about teaching. Everything is about having concise or precise theological convictions and understanding. That's very important. I don't want to in any way belittle that. We try to do that as well. We have a very high view of the Bible and a very high view of theological convictions and understanding. But it's not simply that. It's far more than that. It's not less than that. It's far more than that. It's not just merely a belief system. It's also a lifestyle that Jesus calls people to follow him. Calls them to be what the Bible is going to describe as disciples. And I'll unpack that for you more in just a moment. So what I want to do is uh, I want to pray, and then we're going to get to work. I'm going to read the passage that we'll be studying, and then we'll begin to take a look at the chapter, the little sections of the chapter, as to specifically what it means to respond to or hear the call of Jesus. That there's certain elements of Jesus' call to these disciples that I think are important, not only to the story of Mark, but hopefully, if we hear, if we listen are probably going to be important to your life as well. It will change you, transform you. It will give you more than just simply a belief system. Hopefully it will change the way that you live, change your life. So I want to pray, we'll read, and then we'll get to work. Sound good? So God, we ask you right now that you would help us. We need your wisdom, we need your insight. 
And God, we just confess it on our own. All that we can simply do is have a little Bible study or a lecture. God, we don't want merely that. We want to meet with the living God. God, we want you to transform our lives. We want you to change us. We want to be different people. We want to be better people. But God, at the end of the day, what we realize is that what we need to become better people or to be different people is not just simply to change the way that we act externally. But God, we need new hearts. We need to be different on the inside. And for that to happen, God, we need a miracle to happen. We need for you, Jesus, to open our eyes. We need for you, Jesus, to transform our hearts, to change us. And so we ask you, God, right now that you would just move in this place. Let your word do what it's intended to do, which is to open our eyes, to see you. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do what your Holy Spirit does, which is to illuminate our minds, open our eyes to be able to see that Jesus is beautiful. To see, God, that your plan for our lives, to see, God, that your plan for the universe is a good plan, that you have good desires for us. And God, that we would submit to those things. So we just commit this morning in your hand, or this evening in your hands. We pray, God, that you would meet us here, transform our hearts, transform our minds, and be glorified in this place. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to pick it up tonight at Mark chapter 1. Uh, we'll read about verse 14, go down about verse 20. It says this. Now after John was arrested, and we just kind of learned about John. John was out in the wilderness. He was John the baptizer. He was at this uh, very, very important and impacting ministry. Uh, he was out in the wilderness, kind of which was sort of equivalent to the desert uh, by the Jordan, or the, uh, the Jordan River, which was this river that connected two large bodies of water. And John was out there uh, baptizing people. And a lot of people believe that basically what John was doing was he was getting people ready for the coming of the Messiah, that there's a movement, a kind of a reawakening movement going on in Israel, in, in Judaism. And what John was doing is he was calling these people to come out into the wilderness, which was very symbolic. A lot of scholars believe that what John was doing was sort of uh, revisiting. John kind of was sort of uh, putting on display kind of a, uh, a rehashing or ret- retelling, re-storytelling of the Passover and of the uh, flight from Egypt through the wilderness or through the Red Sea uh, into the wilderness land. And it's very possible that maybe that's what John was doing, is he was sort of reliving the story in a very graphic way by calling people literally into the water, just like Israel went into the water or went through the water and God rescued them. And they became God's people. And perhaps that's what John was doing, that John had this ministry. He was basically saying, come be God's people. Stop just simply giving into the status quo. Stop just simply being merely religious. Stop just simply being people that go to church. It'd be our equivalent today. Stop just simply being people that quote Bible verses, but don't live it. Stop just being people that simply sing songs, pray prayers, talk about God, but don't actually let it change or transform your life. That was John's message. And really, at the end of the day, John was saying, because at the end of the day, God is doing something brand new He's going to be doing something brand new in God's people. And so come be the renewed group or body of God's people. That's what John was calling them to. But John's ministry had an expiration date. And it came to a close. And we're told ultimately it kind of came to a close because he was thrown in jail. And ultimately lost his head. He died. Uh, his head was cut off. And that's what happened with John. And uh, that's what happened when John followed God is it ultimately led to his own death. 
And so John's ministry finishes in verse 14. It says, and after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, and they were fishermen. And then Jesus said to them, follow me. This is Jesus' call. He pulls aside these two fishermen. He says, follow me. He says, and I will make you become fishers of men. And verse 18, it says, and immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And then going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat. They were mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father, Zebedee, in a boat with hired servants, and they followed him. It's kind of an interesting story. Jesus comes to two sets of brothers. First set of brothers are out fishing. Jesus says, follow me. They drop what they're doing. They follow Jesus. Next set of brothers he comes to, we're told in this case, uh, they were with their dad, and their dad was in a boat, and they had hired servants. So they had a workforce. They had employees on staff. They showed up early morning that day. Jesus also showed up early morning and says, how about you guys follow me? And they dropped the nets. They left their dad. They left their dad with hired servants, and they followed Jesus. So what we're going to see in this story, that Jesus comes preaching something. He comes sort of on the coattails or the heels of John the Baptist's ministry. And what he does is he preaches a message, but in response to that, Jesus calls people to follow him. He calls people to enter into something new that he's doing on behalf of Israel, for Israel. This brand new work that God's establishing, that God's involved with, he's actually calling people to be part of this. And again, like I said earlier, Christianity is not just merely a belief system, what you believe about God. It's also a lifestyle, how you live. It's important. That's what God wants for us to understand about this. But what I want begin to, to begin to take a look at are a handful of items, I think, that really kind of come out in the text that Jesus' call entails, or that it's all about. And uh, I'm going to try to get through as many of these as I can, but the first one is this. Jesus' call, because remember, Mark starts out, and he spares no time. He wants to immediately not leave us in the dark or leave us guessing as to who Jesus is. Mark immediately starts out, uh, Mark chapter 1, by simply saying this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, what Mark does, immediately he tells us that this Jesus who lived, died, rose again, and ascended to heaven, he's a king. He's not just any king, he's the king. In fact, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's a very unique vocation, a very unique calling. He is the king that God sent. He is the king that the scriptures and the writings of the ancient Hebrews all pointed to and all talked about. I'll talk about that in a moment here. So Mark wants us to very clearly understand the identity of who Jesus is. See, all of you have an opinion of who Jesus is. Jesus is one of these interesting guys that you can't for any amount of time listen to who he is, listen to what others say about him, and not have an opinion about him. Every human being has an opinion. If they hear about Jesus, they're like, they think something about him. You know, depending upon what forms or shapes your opinion about Jesus, that will ultimately depend upon what you do with that opinion. But everyone has an opinion about Jesus. Jesus is an important subject or important person that we really need to focus on and ask the question, who is he? Who does Jesus say he is? Who do the gospel writers say Jesus is? Who are the people that spent the majority of time with Jesus say he is? That's what's important. So in reality, at the end of the day, 
What you think about Jesus, independent of the Bible, doesn't really make any matter whatsoever. What your professor who's got more degrees than Fahrenheit has to say about Jesus really makes no opinion, that makes no difference whatsoever. What your mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or somebody else around you, or even your pastor, says about Jesus that's independent from the Bible really doesn't matter. What matters is what Jesus says about himself, and what matters are those who are closest to Jesus actually say about Jesus. What we're going to find out is that it's very clear from the storyline of Mark that Mark wants us to understand that this Jesus is the king. This Jesus is going to a cross, and that this Jesus calls people to follow him. Now, it's very important for us to make certain that our opinion about Jesus or our understanding about Jesus is in sync with the Bible. Here's why. If it's not, then the Jesus that you have come to think he is, he's not strong enough to save you. In other words, if you create your own Jesus, if you sort of kind of pick and choose, you're like, I like Jesus that gives food, because I like food. Like, or if you're like, I like Jesus that heals broken limbs, because I don't like broken bones. Like, if you're like, I like Jesuses that are really nice and kind and carry lambs on their back, but I don't like Jesuses that, you know, yell and make whips and cast out money changers in, you know, in, in religious places. I don't like mean Jesus. I just like the Jesus that's going to make me feel nice, warm, and cuddly and feel really warm and fuzzy inside. I like that Jesus. At the end of the day, what you're really doing is you're creating a Jesus based upon yourself. You're not creating a Jesus. You're actually taking what you like, what you prefer about yourself, what you would rather have to be done to you, and you're actually creating something that can't contradict you, it can't challenge you, and a Jesus that can't contradict you, that can't challenge you, at the end of the day, it can't change you. You will never be changed. That Jesus is impotent. He can't change you. He can't correct you. He can't challenge you. He can't change you. So it's important for us to make certain that what we understand and think about Jesus actually syncs up with the Bible. So Mark's going to basically begin to tell us that this Jesus, as he's walking along the seashores, he calls people unto himself. And one of the first things that we're going to notice is that the king's call, because Jesus is a king, he calls people, that this king's call is actually based upon good news, not good advice. Remember, again, first of all, we just read this. It says this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Here's what he said. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus comes on the scene. He's got a message. The very first message that Jesus comes saying is he says, the time has now come. The uh, actual Greek that's basically being utilized here uh, describes a change of events. Something radical is happening. Something brand new is coming on the scene. Kind of the same type of idea, like if any of you are kind of early morning risers, I'm a total morning person. For some reason, I have an alarm clock inside of my head that wakes me up at 4.30 to 5 all the time. I don't know why. Sometimes I don't like it. I just wake up early. I cannot stay up late at all. I mean, I'm done here. I go home, and I even drink a cup of coffee because I try to extend my day off as Monday. I try to stay up as late as I can. So to me, staying up as late as I can is like I'm usually dozing off on the couch like 10.30, all right? I love waking up in the morning. One of the things I love waking up in the morning doing is I'll sit down, I'll be reading my Bible or reading a book or reading something online or whatever, and then all of a sudden I'll notice that the color changes outside. It goes from this dark pitch black 
to kind of a deep, dark purple. And then all of a sudden, that begins to change. The purple turns into more of a blue, and then all of a sudden, the blue kind of begins to change into these brighter hues, these uh, pinks and these oranges and yellows and so on. And then all of a sudden, this is, this is like half an hour, 45 minutes before you even begin to see the sun itself. That's exactly the language that Mark's describing about Jesus. The day's dawning. Something's happened. Something's changing. The night is being pushed back. Day is dawning. And what he's saying is that this day that's dawning is Jesus has arrived. There's a whole new change. And those that have sat in darkness, those that that have grown accustomed to the darkness and the pain of darkness and the hardship of the darkness are, are literally watching the landscape change color. They're watching sort of as these brand new colors begin to saturate and grow and expand, something radical is happening. And what Mark's identifying for us, what Jesus is communicating to us is that he's arrived. Jesus is saying the king's finally come. It's kind of like if you've ever watched Chronicles of Narnia or read the books. Remember the time when they're kind of in, uh, I think in Mr. Beaver's house. They're all hanging around. They're all just eating something. I don't know what they're eating. And then all of a sudden, the beaver kind of whispers in these hush tones. He's like, Aslan is on the move, right? And all of a sudden, like, everything changes, and they're all excited. They get this, like, look on their face where they're smiling. and like, I can't believe this. Who's Aslan, right? He's like, I'm glad you asked. You don't know who Aslan is. Aslan is the king, but he's on the move. Something's changing, right? And when they say that as the book goes on or as the movie goes on, whatever you watch or read, um, the winter, this long winter begins to pass. Um, everything starts to, uh, to melt and all the ice is starting to break up and whatnot because something's changing. That's what C.S. Lewis is trying to convey is that the winter is going away. There's a brand new season that's coming into, into play. And this is exactly the same type of language that Mark wants us to identify with and understand. That the stage is being set. Night is being pushed back. Light is coming. There's a brand new day that's dawning. And it all has to do with Jesus. That Jesus is the king that's coming. Jesus is the king that's changing everything. And Jesus is going to tell us that all of this is good news. I want to make a distinction here that what Jesus comes preaching is good news. Not good advice. This is really essential. And it might seem kind of silly to even point this out. But I want to push this point anyhow. And the reason why is because for the most part, in a lot of Christian circles in America today, so much that gets pushed and publicized as gospel is really not gospel. It's good advice. It's like follow the teachings of Jesus. If you live according to what Jesus has to say, you have a good life. You'll live well. You have a good family. Your finances will get in order. You'll drop 25 pounds. You'll get, marry that person you've always wanted. You'll get the raise you've always desired. You'll get the mortgage. Everything will go through. Everything will be fine. Trust Jesus. Trust the advice that he gives to you, and everything will be fine. And there's sort of this, I realize that's a caricature, but there you go. But the point that I'm trying to make is this, is that good advice really doesn't change you. Have you ever sat around somebody who has a lot of good advice, or somebody that's kind of a hero, somebody that has done something really well in their field, and you're sitting there struggling, you're trying to figure it out, and you realize I'm not that good at what I'm trying to do, but this person's an expert. And even though this person's an expert, you're like, I, I can't even accomplish that, right? Uh, a few years ago, I don't know, last year or whatever, my, my kids were really into like watching The Biggest Loser. 
all right? And that's just kind of a fascinating show to me. Part of what's fascinating to me about the whole show is Jillian Michaels. That lady is absolutely nuts, all right? I mean, she's, she's hardcore. She just works everybody. She's just militant, man. This lady is crazy. And I, I listen to her, and I'm like, I don't know how she, like, encourages you. The lady is mean. She yells at you, and she's scary. She gets this furrowed brow, and she, I have nightmares. I wake up in the middle of the night with cold sweat, and I'm just like, girl freaks me out. Like, I don't listen to her and think, oh, I can do it. I can do it. Right? I listen to her. I'm like, this, I'm, I can't do it. She's hardcore. She's gnarly. She scares me, and I get creeped out by her. And, but the point that I'm trying to make is that just because somebody's a professional in the field or somebody has really good advice, follow my five steps, and you'll do it, doesn't make you feel better all the time. Depends upon your attitude. I mean, you could, might, you could be somebody that's like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to follow the advice, and I'm going to advance. But the majority of people that hear advice, it has a shelf life. It sounds good for a while, but then reality sets in. You're like, I can't do this. It's one of the reasons why, like, you know, somewhere in December, somebody starts saying, you know, what are going to be your New Year's resolutions? And all of a sudden, you get this stupid idea. You're like, you know what? That's right. I got to start, like, writing down these resolutions. How many of you keep those things? Like, nobody does. Like, you get three days into the new year, and all of a sudden, you forgot about them. So that good advice to lay down some resolutions always falls short. And then day five, you feel really bad. You're like, I can't do it again. This is like 30 years of life, and I still can't keep these resolutions. What horrible person I am. So good advice is what I'm trying to say doesn't help you per se. It doesn't save you. It doesn't change you. It doesn't affect your heart. But good news does. Jesus is not simply coming on the scene and just saying, follow these 16 steps and you will have a good life right now. He's not saying follow this advice, this teaching, this communication, the stuff that I'm giving to you comes from God. He could say that because it is from God. It is very good advice. There is a lot of advice in the Bible. I don't in any way want to kind of pull away from that. But primarily, the message that Jesus preaches is not good advice. It's good news. The distinction is this. News is, about, news is about an event, something that actually happened. Good advice just comes from sages. It comes from experts. It comes from people that have been in the field a lot longer than us. But it can't ever really truly change us. It might illuminate us for a short period of time, but then reality sets in, and we're not really any different. Good news is anchored in historical facts. Let me give you an example of this. Nine years before Jesus was born, there was an inscription that was found not too long ago. It says this, talking about Augustus Caesar. Here's what it says. The birthday of the God, Augustus, was for the world... Uh, was for the world the beginning of the tidings of joy. In other words, this is really good news, that Augustus is alive, and what Augustus has done, and the fact that we have a king like Augustus, Caesar Augustus, this is very good news. It brings us all joy. Um, another way in which that idea or the word gospel was also used, not in biblical language, but actually in secular history, was that, for example, when a Caesar would win a battle, there was a decisive battle that was fought or a decisive battle that was won. It would change ultimately the way things would function within a nation. So, for example, imagine if you lived in some sort of little town uh, that was unprotected and there were sort of like vandals living on the outskirts of town or bandits. They were always coming in and 
robbing stuff from you, stealing your goats, or taking advantage of you, taunting and all that, stealing all that type of stuff. And you were powerless. You had no way to protect yourself against the bandits that were always coming in in the middle of the night. But then someone announces the fact that Caesar, you see this big, massive army is coming in from a distance. Caesar is finally here. He's conquered the bandits. He's won the decisive battle. Something has changed. That's good news. So what would happen if the battle like that was won, typically Caesar or one of, the, one of the leading generals would send somebody with the message to go announce to the local towns or to announce to the local cities that the decisive battle that was just recently fought has finally been won. And that person that would run, say, for example, remember the Battle of Marathon, that person that ran, guess what he was? Literally in the Greek, he was an evangelion. He was an evangelist. What did he have? He had really good news. What was the good news? The battle is over. That was the message. He was an evangelist. So the New Testament Bible actually borrows language from the first century, and it basically says, look, we have even better news. Caesar's not Lord. Who is? Jesus is Lord. Caesar's not king. Jesus is the king. That's the message. That's the good news. So Jesus comes on the scene and he announces that the, the whole night is being pushed back. Day is dawning. Everything has changed. There's a decisive battle that's about to be fought and won that will change everything. And this is a historical event that changes everything. And I want you to get this. Because Christianity is actually rooted in historical facts. Not just how you feel about God. Not what you do with certain teaching elements of the New Testament. It's rooted, it's situated in historical facts. It is primarily good news and not so much good advice, even though there is good advice in it. Good advice in it. The second thing that I want you to notice is that the king's call or Jesus' call is also to a kingdom. So first of all, we see that the king's call is based upon good news, not primarily good advice. Secondly, we see that the king's call is to a kingdom. That's one of the reasons why Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he says to his followers, the people that there he's preaching to, he says, uh, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel of the kingdom. So he preaches the fact that there's a kingdom. What I want you to see is that this whole notion, this whole idea of kingdom is actually central to the gospel accounts. About 180 times throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four gospel accounts, uh, the word kingdom or kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven appears. And it's the idea, there's this portrayal, this picture that what's happening, what's advancing is not just a new world religion, but it's a kingdom. That something's changing, something's happening. That the old king, the old kingdom that was preeminent, the old kingdom that was destructive, the old kingdom that was oppressive, the old kingdom that was destructive is now gone or on its way out. But a new kingdom that's not oppressive, a new kingdom that's good, a new kingdom that changes people rather than oppresses them is actually coming. So what I want you to think about when you think about the term kingdom is that oftentimes we think of the word kingdom as being a place. You know, a place that you go to, an actual location. And it can involve that. But in reality, I think when the Bible speaks of the concept of kingdom, it's not necessarily talking about an actual location or a place or a physical locale that you would go to and say, this is God's kingdom. This is where God lives. That more so, it's about the domain. So think of it this way. Every king 
has a sphere of influence. The sphere of influence is his authority. It's recognized authority. The sphere of influence is uh, his domain where he rules. In other words, where this king rules uh, and where this king's rule and reign is accepted and where this king's rule and reign is loved and appreciated, that's the domain. That is, by definition, the actual kingdom. So, for example, Jesus would say something like this in other parts of the gospel, that if I cast out demons, according to God's name, this is the kingdom of God advancing. In other words, where Jesus goes forth, where Jesus moves, his, as a king, Jesus is a king, where Jesus moves in, and let's say a demon has possession of a person's life, Jesus says, you can't have that person anymore. They don't belong to you anymore. They belong to me. So you have to relinquish your claim upon that person's life, let them go, push back, move away, because this is my property, this is mine, this belongs to me, this is my domain. What Jesus is saying is that my kingdom is actually advancing because I'm a king. That's what Jesus is trying to say. But here's, I'm going to try to root this concept of kingdom for you even further in the Old Testament, because this is where it comes from. Uh, Even though the explicit terms, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, are actually not found in the Old Testament. The concept is found throughout the Bible. I'll start with the very beginning. When God created Adam and Eve, God put Adam and Eve in a garden. This garden was to be a place that God says, you are to find life, you are to find joy, enjoy everything that I've given you. God would basically say, I'm king. I'm king over all things. But as king, I'm calling you to share with my dominion, share with my kingdom, enjoy my kingdom. Part of that kingdom enjoyment that God welcomes Adam and Eve to be a part of is all of creation. It's one of the reasons why God says, exercise dominion over all things. Cultivate the earth. Eat a lot of good fruit. Build a lot of beautiful buildings. Do a lot of good things. Uh, Cultivate everything. It's going to be a very large task. You're going to need a very, very huge workforce, which means you're going to have to have a lot of babies. So get to work. Have a lot of babies. God literally says, be fruitful and multiply. Why? Because God wants the earth filled with people who recognize and love and appreciate and honor the domain in the kingdom of God. It's a good kingdom. What happens? Well, all things go really well for two chapters. In chapter 3, everything goes down the tubes. This absolutely beautiful kingdom of God in which Adam and Eve had everything literally at their fingertips that they were being called into to be a part of sharing in God's kingdom. Everything dies. Everything comes to a halt. Why? Because Adam and Eve, rather than trusting God, rather than trusting and obeying God as king in their life, they question God as king in their life. That's the essence of Adam's sin. It basically boiled down to this. God, I don't trust you. I don't know if your kingdom, I don't know if your words, I don't know if your opinions, I don't know if your ideas, your thoughts, your words, your ways are the appropriate ways. I think mine are. See what it was? It was a mutiny. It was literally mutiny. It was Adam and Eve literally saying, I think our ways are a little bit higher than your ways. We know things a little bit better. It was a counter kingdom. It was a false kingdom, a rival kingdom. And as a result of that, God says, the moment you eat of the fruit, the moment you challenge my authority, the moment you question, you revolt against, you fight against, you resist my kingdom, you will die. And the reason why God says this is because by the very nature of who God is, God is life. And therefore, everything that God says, everything God does is life-giving. You understand that? 
Everything God says, everything God does is life-giving. God is life himself. And so those who trust and obey and honor and love all that God is, guess what? They become life-giving agents too. But what would happen if you upset the order of that and say, I don't want God. I want myself. I want to do what I want to do. I want to live according to my own dictates of my own heart. I want to do what I think is correct, what I think is right, and I want to disregard what God has to say. What you're actually doing is you're walking away from a fountain of life, and you will engage death. You will die. Because by walking away from God, the fountain of life, you're actually walking not just from God, but you're walking away from life into the only, uh, only alternative, which is death. That's the opposite of God. Light, God is light. Opposite of light is darkness. God is life. Opposite of life is death. That's the two alternatives. It's the two options that we have. And so God says to turn from my kingdom, to turn to your kingdom, to trust your own heart, to trust your own desires, to not trust mine actually leads to a death. And maybe that's where some of you are right now. Maybe perhaps some of the deaths that you've been feeling in your own life Maybe not so much physical, but maybe so much the sense of looking at relationships in your life or circumstances that have been going wrong in your life or scenarios that have been popping up in your life and they've kind of left your soul broken and empty and in anguish actually have to do more so with the fact that you've been calling into question God's lordship, God's kingship over your life. And what you're actually experiencing is a death. You're experiencing life apart from life you're dead even though your heart is beating you're dead even though you've got some sort of brain activity you're dead and the beautiful thing that jesus is doing is he's calling us back into a kingdom of life so everything starts with this kingdom in the very beginning and god gives a kingdom literally to adam and eve how did adam and eve do with the kingdom well they failed They didn't do what God asked them to do. They actually questioned God's authority. They became kings and queens under themselves. Rather than trusting God, they basically squandered this opportunity that God had given them. Death came into the world. The Bible is going to literally tell us that death came through one man and continued to reign. Well, fast forward a few hundred years. God comes across a man by the name of Abraham. And he calls Abraham. He says, Abraham, let's give this a shot again. What I want to do through you, Abraham, is I want to raise you up and I want to build a brand new nation. Let's start all over again. Let's build a nation of people, a kingdom. Let's build a kingdom. You'll be the father of the kingdom. I'll be the God of the kingdom. You'll walk with me. You'll love me. You'll create a whole lineage of people, sons and daughters that will follow me, that will love me. And the people that will be birthed from you will be people that will honor me and love me and listen to my words and follow my ways. So God raises up Abraham, and what comes through Abraham is his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob, and ultimately through Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. So Israel literally is birth. So the question is, how good did Israel do? Did Israel honor God, love God, serve God, appreciate God, do everything out of glory and praise and honor and thanksgiving to God, recognizing the authority of God? No, that's not what happened at all. I mean, that's the storyline of the entire Bible. If you've ever read through major chunks of the Bible, you're like, man, it's a pretty depressing book. It's a depressing book in a lot of ways because for the most part, you get narrative, massive chunks of narrative of people who are living lives, if I can go so far and be so bold, they're just like yours and mine. We're out of sync with God. Rather than submitting to his authority and his lordship and his goodness and his kindness, we're constantly resisting 
we're leaning upon our own understanding and then rather than trusting in his. We're being gods unto ourselves. So the story of God's kingdom is actually rooted in the garden, rooted through Israel. But what happened with Israel is that Israel failed. Israel was supposed to be a kingdom, a priest, a kingdom, a priest. That were to be people that honored God, loved God, and populated the earth and demonstrated to the world around us how good, how great life could be, should be, under the reign of this amazing God. Israel didn't do a good job. They failed. They sinned. And as they sinned, they were sold off into slavery. They fell under the oppression of foreign nations like the Assyrians, Egyptians, the Babylonians, and all sorts of little skirmishes on their own border towns constantly, nonstop. And it was God's way of saying, this is what happens when you reject me. At some point, it will end up in some form of oppression and slavery and self-destruction. That was the storyline of Israel. But what happens is all throughout the Old Testament, God had these little promises. All throughout the all throughout the prophets that God would send one day somebody somebody would rise up somebody would come and this person this somebody who would come would actually be God's servant and he would do something for Israel that was phenomenal in other words he would do something on behalf of Israel for Israel that Israel failed to do for herself and I'll give you a couple examples of these Uh, the book of Isaiah chapter 11 I want to read this to you very quickly Isaiah chapter 11 says this great passage talking about this particular person. It says in Isaiah 11, he says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from the roots shall bear fruit. This is significant because Jesse was actually the father of King David. King David was royalty. So what he's saying is that through the stump of Jesse, in other words, through the lineage of David, there'll come a king. There'll be a royal lineage that will come out of David, and whoever this particular person that will come out of David and be a part of God's restorative purposes, he'll be a king. you got to catch this. You can't miss this because this is exactly uh, where the writer Mark is trying to direct our minds. And he says this in verse 2. He says, The Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, the fear of the Lord, and the delight uh, shall be in the fear of the Lord. So whoever this person is, whoever this one that will be royalty after, or in the lineage of David, uh, the Holy Spirit will actually fall upon him. Isn't it crazy to think that we just read in the Gospel of Mark that Mark kind of sets the stage. He starts the entire Gospel off by saying, this is the story of Jesus the King. What's the very next thing that he shows us that Jesus the King does? He goes out to John the Baptizer, goes under the water, gets baptized, and the very next thing that happens is the Spirit of God falls upon him. What's Mark doing? Mark's literally trying to concoct the story, but it's a truthful story. That what happened in Israel in Mark's day is that Jesus is the fulfillment of these prophecies. He's not just some random dude come on the scene. He's not just some random rabbi preaching a new message. He is God. He is the anointed one. He is the king that's coming to change everything. That's what Mark wants us to understand about who Jesus is. He goes on to say in verse 6 in his whole little passage that when this king comes... When he begins to set up his reign, when he becomes king, everything will be different. Listen to how he describes it. He says this, the wolf will lay down with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child will lead them. The nursing child will play over the hole of a cobra. 
So in other words, he's kind of using very depictive language uh, or very descriptive language to depict the events or the ways in which things will happen. The picture is, is that peace will actually be prevalent. That when this king reigns, it will be a peace, but it won't be a peace like Pax Romana. I mean, there was a peace throughout Rome, but you've got to understand the type of peace that Rome had was basically a peace that said, if anybody contradicts Caesar, you die, and you die a bloody death. Anybody who contradicts Caesar would typically die on a cross. Horribly bloody, excruciatingly painful death. So Pax Romana was actually built upon oppression. It was built upon affliction. It was built upon someone else's blood. This peace that this king is going to bring is no doubt a powerful peace. But this peace that this king brings is not a peace that's built upon somebody else's oppression. But this king comes and he will be oppressed. This king comes and he will not be a king that will build his peace upon the backs of affliction. But rather this king comes, when he comes, he will be afflicted. When Jesus the king comes, rather than being a peace that comes slaying enemies and spilling their blood, this king, when he comes, he will have his blood spilled for his enemies. It's radically different that the kingdom of this king is profoundly different. It's not like any other kingdom that has ever been on the face of this planet. That's what Mark wants us to understand. Now, if any of you guys have been watching the news this past week, you noticed something. It's pretty profound. Maybe you didn't notice it this way, but what I wanted to kind of describe to you, what you saw in the news this past week in Libya, really was, in short, kind of a half-breed picture of gospel, an announcement. I'll give you an example. I was watching the news, and after a Gaddafi was killed, slayed, martyred, destroyed, whatever you want to describe it, uh, there was a gal that was basically interviewed. She was, um, you know, from, from Libya. She spoke English probably in her early 20s, probably a college-age student. She was crying. She was just absolutely in tears, just crying. And then when they interviewed her, they asked her, like, you know, what are you feeling right now? She's like, I am so happy. This is the best day of my entire life. Uh, this is very, very good news. What's happened is that everything is going to change now. Everything is different. Every, a new day is dawn. She actually used gospel Bible language to describe what's happened. Why? Because what happened was, in a negative sense, the evil, the oppression, the oppressor was destroyed. He was destroyed. The problem is, is I, say, I put that in sort of the negative sense, because in reality, even though the oppressor was destroyed, if we understand history correctly, what will probably happen in Libya is the same thing that will happen in any other country. That there's, a, there's sort of an incubation period of joy. Everybody's happy right now because Gaddafi's gone. He's dead. But the reality is, is at some point, probably in the near future, maybe the next couple days, maybe the next couple weeks, maybe the next couple months, there will be a new leader that will be brought in. Either he'll be a tyrant or some degree lesser of a tyrant than Gaddafi. Or if somehow... Democracy rules in that country, which, you know, anything's game at this particular point right now. Even if the nation is able to vote in an actual leader by democratic rule and way, does that guarantee that this good news is going to continue to keep going on? Does that mean that this ruler that's going to be coming in now is going to be a really good king? Probably not. He'll probably be the same type of power player just like any other king. So this is one of the reasons why I would say what you saw in the news is some semi-quasi-type form of gospel based upon the fact that the oppressor has been destroyed, conquered. 
Let me say one other thing about the whole thing that you guys watched in the news past week. If any of you watched the graphic uh, depiction of Gaddafi after he was caught, he's paraded through the street. It was deeply, deeply disturbing. Okay, if you guys watched that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's horrific. I watched it. I was in shock. I turned the video off afterwards. And I'm just like, I feel really filthy. It was just a horrible, horrible thing that happened. Regardless of how horrible and evil he was, it was just deeply disturbing. But basically, they caught him. They paraded him through the street. He was still alive. People were literally pulling his hair out, punching him in the face. He was bleeding from all places on his body. He was literally begging for mercy. He was shouting out, crying out, please stop because of my brothers. While he's talking, there's one little scene that I saw. He's talking. He's, he's just literally just destroyed. He's wiping his face, looking at the blood on his face. You see his head being hit forward because what's happening are people coming up behind him and clocking him in the head behind. He's being destroyed. And then finally, they put him on the front of a car. They drive him through whatever city that they're in, parading him, showing him off. This is, this is you know, the feared leader that everybody was afraid of. Now he's destroyed. Now he's bloodied. Now he's humiliated and broken and, and broken down. And ultimately, they throw him on the ground. They start punching him, kicking him, beating him up. It's bloody. It's horrible. And finally, someone puts a bullet in his, between his eyes. What happened in Libya is when you have a king that's rejected, when you don't like that king, you don't like the reign of that king, you don't like the suggestion of the leadership of that king, that's what people do to kings they don't like. That's what exactly what happened with Jesus. So if you saw the graphic storyline on any YouTube clip of what happened with Gaddafi, that's probably exactly what happened with Jesus because Jesus was a king, but Jesus' reign was rejected. Jesus was the king that brought a peace, but his peace was not on the back of oppression, bringing oppression. Jesus himself was a king that brought peace by being oppressed. Jesus was the king that brought peace by being himself afflicted. Jesus was the king that brought peace not by spilling the blood of his enemies, but by allowing his enemies to spill his own blood. But this kingdom that Jesus comes is a different kingdom. It's not like the kingdom of Gaddafi. It's not like the kingdom of Caesars. It's not like the kingdom that comes being destructive and being oppressive. It's a radically different kingdom, but it's a kingdom nonetheless. And it's a kingdom that involves this good news that this king comes. He has a mission in his life, and the mission that this kingdom, that this king comes bringing has to do with his death, has to do something with the direction that he's going all the way to the cross, that he will die for people that hate him, that despise him, that have rejected his kingdom's reign. That's what this king does. This is what the king's call is to. It's to this kingdom. <clears throat> the next thing I want you to notice is that this king's call is also to the broken. It's to broken people. It's kind of an amazing thing when you see the storyline of this, is that what happens in the story, that when Jesus comes on the scene, he's preaching about God's kingdom, and he says that this is good news. Jesus preaches this really good news. It's not good advice. And he's basically anchoring everything that he is about to do in the historical scripture, the historical narrative of Israel itself. In other words, in short, what Jesus is saying is that I will do for Israel what Israel has failed to do for themselves. Israel was called into a kingdom, and Israel failed that king. Israel didn't live according to God's reign. Israel didn't love God with all their heart, mind, soul, strength, and might. But this king will. Jesus will. Jesus can be said that he loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, strength, and might. That this kingdom obeyed God all the time, never wavered. Unlike Adam, 
Adam was told by God, don't eat the fruit of the tree. If you eat the fruit of the tree, you will die. And Adam ate the fruit of the tree, and he died. Jesus, the king, he comes, and God says, if you partake of the tree, you will die. And Jesus says, I'll partake of the tree, even if it involves a death. Why? Because Jesus was obedient to the Father, even to the point of the death, even death on the cross. This is how far this Jesus is going to reestablish kingdom, doing for Israel what Israel failed to do for herself, doing for you and I what we have failed to do for ourselves. We've not loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength, and might. We've not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We've not lived selflessly in everything that we do. We've not lived having generosity just pouring out of every orifice of our lives. That's not how we've lived. In fact, quite to the opposite. We're selfish. We're independent. We, this, we, people who disagree with us, we shun them. We distance ourselves from them. Even sometimes the good things that we do, we do them because we feel somehow they will either bring us affirmation, they will get us into the in crowd. They, even the good things we do, we often do good things out of bad motives. Therefore, they're bad. They're evil deeds even though they look good. But we have a king. And he did for us what we failed to do for ourselves, which is to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. This king does this. And this king does this on our behalf for us. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he preaches this message. What Jesus then comes to do is he invites people to come follow him. So the very first thing Jesus does is he does a lot of his ministry around this particular region of Galilee. Now, Galilee was a, 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 a lake uh, to the north of Israel, a very large lake, actually, large body of water. And it was the area that Jesus did the majority of his ministry. Uh, this is where he proclaimed the gospel. This is where he preached to these people. And this is where Jesus actually found his first disciples to follow after him. And one day, we're basically told in the storyline here that Jesus came up to uh, two guys that were there fishing with their dad, and Jesus, or just fishing, another group of guys that were fishing with their dad, and Jesus calls them. He says, come follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And these guys ended up dropping their nets and leaving their dad uh, with hired servants, and they end up going out following Jesus. But what's really fascinating about this is that what Jesus does is actually in some ways very much in line with historic uh, first century Judaism, but in some ways very distinct, very different. Let me give an example. Uh, what Jesus does is he actually calls people to follow after him. So by this time, Jesus is around 30 years old. Jesus is the age of most rabbis. So a rabbi was kind of equivalent to a pastor in the first century. This was somebody that knew the Bible. They studied the Bible. They were able to teach the Bible. These are people that would oftentimes have kind of traveling ministries. They would go around, pray for people, pray for the sick, uh, uh, help feed the poor, they would do a lot of good deeds, and they, while they would walk around, they would tell people about God. They would read the scriptures. They would open the scriptures and say, this is what God has to say about this. This is what Rabbi so-and-so has to say about God's word. And this is sort of the way that they would live. Jesus was a rabbi. And oftentimes, rabbis would have people following them. They were, they were called disciples. And a disciple was, was you know, just somebody or a handful of people, and they would follow the rabbi, and they would learn from the rabbi. Not just simply transferring knowledge, transferring information. Um, sometimes people, I think I've, I've heard people describe, you know, when asked, you know, what's a disciple? I think most people, when they respond to that question, they would say, well, a disciple is, is like a student. In some way, that's only half correct. 
Because a person is not just simply a student, or a disciple is not just merely a student. If what we mean by student is somebody that sits underneath a teacher, who's got a lot of wealth of wisdom and knowledge, and the goal of the student is to just merely transfer the wealth of wisdom and knowledge from that teacher into themselves by reading books, by listening to lectures, kind of what some of you do, obviously, five days out of the week, uh, going to Cal Poly or Cuesta, you learn, you study. What you have is you have a perfect description of you being a student. You're trying to get educated. You're trying to learn information from your professor so that you can take the test, pass uh, the grade, ultimately get a diploma and get a good job. But what none of you are doing, I don't think, is you're saying, I want to be exactly like my professor. I want to read the text like he reads it. I want to have the same type of shoes that he has. I want to live in the same place he lives. I want to follow him. Because if you did, what would end up happening is you'd probably end up in jail because that's pretty creepy. But the point of the matter is, is that's what a learner is. That's what a student does. He learns or she learns from a particular professor. That's not what a disciple does. So these rabbis would have disciples following them. But what would never happen is rabbis rarely, if ever, would actually ask people to be a disciple. It just didn't happen. So what Jesus does in asking these guys to be his disciples is very unique. So here's typically how it would happen first century. We know this based upon archaeological digs and based upon first century literature that we've been able to unearth and discover and find out a little bit about the way first century Judaism worked. Here's the way it would work. So if you were a kid, a boy, raised up in a Jewish family, a Jewish Orthodox family, you would study the Torah from about age 8 to around age 12. So you would go to Torah school. That's kind of the way the school, scholastic system would work. You'd go to school. You'd study the Torah. Torah is the first five books of Moses. You'd memorize scripture. And here's the deal. If you did a really good job at that, if you did a really good job at that, by age 12, what would typically happen is you would go into a second level tier of education, kind of like extended education. You would begin to go beyond that. And the second level tier of education would typically happen between age 12 to age 15. The second tier level of education would now involve you learning the rest of the Bible. Sometimes it was not unusual for some of these young students to memorize large portions of the Psalms, large portions of Isaiah, um, all of these Old Testament prophets. They would memorize these things. This is between age 12 and 15. Another thing that you would do is you would typically learn a trade. So let's say, for example, if your dad was a farmer, you learn how to farm. If your dad was a shepherd, you learn how to shepherd sheep or cows or whatever else you do. If your dad was a fisherman, you learn how to fish. You'd pick up the trade while you were also going to school full-time learning. So technically, if you were between ages of 12 to 15 and you were now brought into the second tier level of education, you didn't have a whole lot of time on your hands to go surfing, to surf the internet, to do play ball, anything. You just didn't have a lot of time to do anything because you're very busy studying, memorizing scripture, learning a trade. So you're going to school full time, you're memorizing a lot of scripture, you're learning the interpretations of the rabbis, and then after school you're working with your dad for the rest of the day until mom makes dinner. Then you go to bed, wake up, and you start the whole thing all over again. And for them, days started from sundown to sunup. So the moment the sun was up, you're up working with dad, and then whenever school started, then you're doing that until the evening. You just kept doing that over and over again to around to about age 15. And if you were really good, I mean, around age 15, if, if you're catching the eyebrows of the rabbis, and rabbis are like, dang, this guy's memorizing a lot of scripture. He's really smart. He's really advanced. He's got a lot of wisdom. 
what they would do is they would encourage you to seek out deeper education. But the way that the seeking out deeper education would happen is now the burden would be upon you to find somebody that you can submit yourself to and continue deeper education to learn from. So what would happen is from age 15 to about age 30, you would for the next 15 years study under this rabbi that would now become your teacher, your leader, your rabbi. You would now become in a relationship with him whereby you would be a disciple. So what I want you to get is this, that if you really advanced, if you have moved far along in this whole process, you have a sharp mind, you have a keen awareness of theological matters, and you're just really good at school. How many of you are really good at school? Raise your hand. Like, okay, both of you. That's about it. The rest of you, I'm assuming, are probably like me. Throughout high school, I was like straight C minuses, and that was about it. A couple D pluses. But the point of the matter is that, for the most part, I, I just wasn't somebody that, like, I, I didn't apply myself. I didn't really care that much about school to my shame. It wasn't a good thing. I'm not boasting that. But the reality is that some of us are just, we don't have the ability to think well or to focus our attention and study well. And so if you were that type of person in that culture, you weren't getting the Bible, you wasn't making sense to you, you weren't very smart, you couldn't memorize a lot of scriptures, they'd ask you like, what is this scripture? And you're like, I don't, I don't know. Like if that was your answer on a regular basis, by the time you're age 15, you're going to be working with your dad. You're a dropout. You're a failure. Everybody's just kind of giving up on you. You're like, should we ask him to follow us? No, he can't even memorize one verse. He's no good. He's not smart. Nobody wants to invest in you any further because you're not, you're not worthy of being invested in. So what we learn here in this passage, a couple things. Where does Jesus find these guys? Fishing. What does it tell us about them? Right? They're not smart. Yeah, you get, you get that, right? Yeah, good. You are smart, all right? You got that, all right? They're not smart. They didn't get it. They're not advanced. They're not, they're not rabbinic stuff, all right? Uh, typically, like I said, if you're smart, you're advanced, if you're being promoted to go on further, you go find a rabbi, you ask that rabbi, and as you continue in that between age 15 to age 30, by the time you're age 30, if you're really advanced, you learn the interpretations of your rabbi, you now would then become a rabbi yourself, age 30. When did Jesus start his career? 30. Jesus was moving literally right within the whole scope of first century Judaism. Jesus started his career, his ministry, his rabbinic ministry at age 30. But what Jesus does is he goes out and he seeks out these guys to be his disciples. Where does he find them? Fishing. What does it tell us? They didn't make the cut. What does it also tell us? I don't know, for me, for many years... Kind of think if you were to ask me, like, how old were these guys? Like, I would think, for the most part, these guys were, like, middle-aged, balding, really short dudes just cruising around in dresses, all right? Like, 45 years old, walking around with, like, an old cane and stuff like that, kind of balding, and, and uh, that's uh, how they were. But I think if we look at it in first-century context, it's very possible that these guys were between ages 15 to 30. Can you imagine Peter being, like, 18 years old, teenager, barely got his driver's license? He's like, I'm driving camels, stick shift. It's awesome, you know? Like, and, and the reality is that, that these guys were working for their dad, which means nobody wanted them. They weren't the right stuff for any rabbi. 
every other rabbi would have omitted them, not want to have anything to do with them. These guys were probably very young, perhaps, like I said, maybe between age 15 to 30. That kind of brings things home for a lot of us because we begin to realize, like, what type of people does Jesus call? What type of people do kings call? Let's start with that question. You're going to start a kingdom. And you had the right stuff. You had the goods. You had power. You had might. You had sharp mind. You're going to start a kingdom. What type of people would you surround around your life, around you? You'd surround yourself with the smartest, the brightest, the strongest. Like, for me, I, I'd want all the guys from 300 to be, like, on my military team. All right? All those guys. Big, rippled abs. They're very strong very competent. They know how to use a spear and an axe. I need those guys. Like, those are the guys you want on your side. Like, you find the strongest, most powerful, the wealthiest, the richest, uh, the best looking, the ones that are the wisest. Those are the people you find. If you're going to build a kingdom, if you're going to surround yourself with the best, brightest, best looking, you, you, want, you want the best of the best to launch your kingdom campaign. Not this king. He goes out after the rejects, the people that nobody else wants, the people that failed, the people that couldn't make the cut. There's a lot of hope for me in that. I read that and I realize Jesus doesn't omit anybody. Because for some of us, that's the type of king we look at and we're like, I, I could never be part of any king or kingdom. No king would ever want me. No king would ever look at me. And no king would ever find me desirable. You don't know my past. You don't know what I've done. You don't know, the, know anything about my, my life. The things that have disqualified me. The things that have ruined me. The things that have defiled me. The things that have just completely destroyed me. The things that would disqualify me. You don't know anything about this. But this king does. Jesus knows everything about these guys. Remember, he's not just any king. He's God. So he knows very clearly who he's calling. He strategically goes out along the shores of Galilee. He strategically targets those that have been omitted, those that have been rejected, those that have been just simply turned aside because they have failed. They flunked out. Just follow me, guys. Something else at play here that's powerful. Because if indeed Jesus is a king, if indeed Jesus' kingdom is actually situated in this whole historical context of the Bible... Jesus uses language that's very interesting. He says, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. I've always read that. I've always heard commentators say, well, what Jesus is doing, he's just tapping into the context and the culture. I mean, these guys are fishermen, so he's actually using language that they might be familiar with to kind of expound upon that and say, I'll call you guys are fishermen, you catch fish. Hey, how about this? Here's kind of a nice little cliche way of inviting you into my work of ministry. You guys can fish for men now. It's very possible. That might be what Jesus is saying. I think there might be something else that's playing on here in the text. In Jeremiah chapter 16, verse 15 and 16, it's a very important passage. And again, if indeed Mark is building a case to prove that Jesus is a king and that this king is actually operating in line with Old Testament prophecies, that one day God would send somebody to restore Israel, that when this king comes, he will establish a kingdom. And part of this kingdom will have to do with paying a very great price. But after that price has been paid, there will be a restoration process. People be, will be restored. People will take their swords and turn them into pruning hooks and turn them into fishing gear. Rather than having swords to kill people, they will use their gear to now 
find fish. And they will find ways to become better at establishing gardens and stuff like that. And so what he's saying is that one day God will restore all things. But the restoration that this king will establish will actually be by inviting other people that have themselves been restored to be a part of this process. And listen to this passage in Jeremiah chapter 16. It says this, talking about this time of restoration. I will bring them, Israel, back to their own land, and I will give them to their fathers. And God says, uh, Behold, I am sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they will catch them. So there's this very abstract prophecy in Jeremiah where God says, I will send forth these people, and they will be like fishermen, and they will actually be brought into this restorative process by finding people, bringing them in, God will take people that were formerly captive, formerly oppressed, formerly afflicted, formerly destroyed, who are now set free, and they will become people that will be part of the restorative process. So I think when Jesus shows up on the seashores of Galilee to these guys that are a bunch of dropouts, and says, guys, want to fish for men? I think it would have triggered in their mind the thought of that passage in Jeremiah, that one day God would bring a restorer, and he will call for people to be like fishermen, to fish, to be a part of this restorative process. And here these guys are, completely abandoned by every other rabbi, every other teacher, every other religious leader because they're failures. They haven't done a good job. They can't make the cut. They can't make the grade. And yet Jesus tracks them down, strategically follows, comes to them, and says, guys, I'm inviting you into this restorative process. Will you come? Will you follow Will you be my disciples? Discipleship is not just about you learning information about God. It's about you taking upon yourself the way of your master. Living like he lives. Praying like he prays. Loving like he loves. Forgiving like he forgives. Honoring the way he honors. Being generous the way he's generous. If your understanding of Christianity is become so neat and so tidy, and so neuterized, that all it is is just simply you learning information about the Bible, and that's it. So you show up at church, you listen to a sermon, you critique the sermon, you go home, and you continue to talk about how loud the preacher yelled at you, or how long you babbled on for, or how dim the lights were, or how horrible everything else was, and you do that again week after week after week, and you never get brought into the actual functioning of restorative process that Jesus calls you into. All you are is not a disciple. You're a consumer. That's all you are. You're a student, but not a disciple. The call of the Bible, the call of Jesus, the king, is to come into his kingdom, to be transformed by his kingdom power. And to be part of that restorative process. You say, but I'm not good enough. Did you hear the message? You don't need to be good enough. Of course you failed. That's part of the reality. All of us have failed. All of us have not lived the life that God called for us to live. All of us have failed in loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and might. That's not an excuse. Because what God has done is he sent his son into this world to do for you what you have failed to do for yourself. And so therefore, in Jesus... In his work, in his ministry, all of your failure is literally lost in his perfection. This is how much he loves you. This is why Jesus, when he comes on the scene, he says, I've arrived. 
culmination of all of Israel's story is to be summarized in me. Do you believe that? Do you believe that about Jesus? Because really at the end of the day, you have to form some sort of opinion about Jesus. In fact, I would even go so far as to say you've already formed an opinion about Jesus. But a Jesus you make up can't change you. Can't change you. But the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus that's a king, the Jesus that comes bringing kingdom, the Jesus that comes bringing this kingdom and announces and says this is a good kingdom, this Jesus that comes announcing this good kingdom and calling bad people, wicked people, failure type people into this kingdom. This is really good news. I hope you know that. This is how good our king is. He calls you. He omits nobody who would respond to him. We're going to respond now. We're going to sing. We'll worship. We'll respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. We have donation boxes in the back that's for you to give generously and joyfully to your king. Because when the king sets you free, you're no longer a slave to money. You're no longer a slave to stuff, to goods, to things. You're free. And because the king sets you free, you can be free to freely give away your life, give away your goods, give away things that you once held you bound. You're free. That's what the message of the gospel brings about. A king is slain, an oppressor, I should say, is slain, and a new king comes on the scene and changes everything. Have you seen the daylight dawning in Jesus. That's what Mark wants us to identify. That when Jesus has come on the scene, everything's changed. Because it's not good advice. It's good news. Jesus, we just thank you that you've come. Your kingdom is here. It's not an abstraction. God, we realize that one day your kingdom will be consummated. We will be in it in a full way. God, right now, in a lot of ways, we're just sort of mid-morning. We haven't reached noon yet. We haven't reached the full climax of noon. Things are being changed. Our hearts are being transformed. Slaves have been set free. Oppressors are being destroyed. Idols are being crushed. Sick people are being healed. Dead are being raised. Because the kingdom is here. So God, I ask you right now that you would just, in this room here, allow us, help us to be able to respond to you appropriately. That if you truly are the king, and we truly are former enemies, or even currently our enemies, God, I pray that we would lay our weapons down lay them down at your feet, that we would even lay down our crowns, lay down our good things as well as our bad things, in submission to you, Jesus, as King. That we would love you, and serve you, and honor you, and, and let the affections of our hearts be stirred, God, in a way that would just respond to you appropriately. God, for some of us, that means we have to be broken from our pride, because our pride is like this outer, thick shell that keeps us protected. Our pride is like these guards that are profoundly powerful and strong that keep us from being weak. God, that's crushing us. That's killing us. What we need is we need to let our guard down and trust you as king. 
we invite you, God, even right now, to just bring transformation here in our hearts, in this place, in this room. As we sing, as we partake of communion, as we give joyfully our tithes and offerings. Meet us here, guys. we sing.